0: Ask folks on the street who Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox are, and chances are many will know they're the creators of Central Park. But drop the name John Randall Jr., and you might get more than your fair share of blank stares. But Randall was instrumental in the development of the New York City we know and love today. Good morning. I'm George Polarkey, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Joining us this morning to talk about this often unrecognized 19th century genius is Marguerite Holloway. She's the author of a new book about John Randall, Jr. It's called The Measure of Manhattan. Marguerite, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So here's the million-dollar question. Who was John Randall, Jr.?
1: John Randall Jr. was a surveyor and inventor and cartographer who was born in 1787, lived a very, very long life for that time, until 1865, and he laid the grid plan down on Manhattan. He went on to do many other things after his work in New York City, but... um, we, we can maybe talk about that a little bit later.
0: We certainly will. Not a native New Yorker, John Randall Jr. was. He is an Albany native, right?
1: He is an Albany native. He um, grew up in Albany, and he somehow became apprentice to Simeon DeWitt, who was the surveyor general for New York State. And that led directly to his New York City work, because Simeon DeWitt became one of the three commissioners who came up with the grid plan for New York City.
0: What prompted that decision to move forward with a grid plan at that time in New York City?
1: There was a lot of... concern about development. How was development going to proceed up the island? Um, Was it going to be sort of haphazard in the way that it had really been sort of at the tip of the island or was there going to be a master plan? And um, there were so many different voices involved in talking about that, that the city reached out in an unusual way to the state government for help. And the state government came up with this idea of uh, of a commission and these three commissioners who would make the decision. So they pulled it out of sort of the politics and the, the struggle that was uh, on, ongoing in New York City.
0: So for those listening right now who might be unfamiliar with this idea of a grid, talk about the grid for us.
1: The grid um, is actually, um, according to a lot of the scholars that I read uh, in doing the book, pretty much the most common city plan throughout history. And at the time that the commissioners devised the grid for Manhattan, Um, The grid was expanding across the country as a sort of uh, development plan for towns and cities uh, stretching across the western United States. It had been uh, the form that Philadelphia had taken, New Haven had taken, Savannah had taken. There was nothing really particularly unusual about a grid. In hindsight, uh, some people really felt that it was unusual, particularly for Manhattan, because it was a very hilly island, and having a grid across hills um, is can be challenging.
0: How different is the topography of New York City today compared to pre-grid?
1: Interestingly, it's not hugely different. Um, The geographer, Reuben Rose Redwood, who appears in the book and who has studied the changes in elevations, has shown in his work that it essentially follows the same form but the peaks have been lowered somewhat and the valleys have been raised somewhat. It's overall a little smoother, but you can see and you can feel it as you walk around the city. You can see these hills and these undulations and they surprise and delight. I mean, I've grown up in... um, New York City basically my whole life, and I still love encountering these hills and these valleys. It reminds me that the sort of elemental topography is still there, even if it's been somewhat subdued.
0: You tell two stories, really, in your book, the story of John Randall Jr. and how he mapped out the grid, but also the story of this group of people who set out to retrace what Randall did.
1: Yes, it's amazing. Um, Reuben Rose Redwood and Lemuel Morrison and occasionally surveyors who've worked with them set out to find some sign of Randall's work. Uh, They were really uh, dedicated to that, and they spent a lot of time looking around in city parks. They looked um, in Mount Morris, and they looked um, in... Uh, Central Park. And after a lot of sort of hunting, uh, they ended up finding a bolt uh, in a rock that perfectly aligns with the street grid plan. And although they are very, they're careful, they say they're not 100% sure it, it is a Randall Bolt. It really seems very much like it is. And um, on another occasion, Lemuel Morrison and a colleague of his and my daughter and I went up um, I can't remember exactly where we found another one, in the northern reaches of Manhattan, past the end of the grid, Um, and it looks like there's another up there.
0: You talk in the book about how the big rock, the so-called big rock in Riverside Park, plays a role in how this book came together. What's the story there?
1: Because I grew up in New York City, and I think for many people there's a real interest in how our relationship to place changes over time, particularly if we've been in a place for a very long time. And because I was very uh, little when I moved to New York City with my family, I had this relationship with a rock in Riverside Park, and this rock was mountainous. It was vast, and it was this place of excitement and exploration and discovery and a little bit of fear almost because it was so big. And as the years went by, the rock became smaller and smaller as I became bigger and bigger. And my sense of being able to see that rock both as this huge um, mountain and as this small rock where my children now play with their schoolmates um, really has made me think a lot about how we experience time in landscapes and Connected me a bit to how I think some scientists see sort of time, see landscapes through time. And uh, that was very important to me because the genesis of the book was really um, a New York Times article I wrote for, um, I think it was in 2004, about Eric Sanderson's Manahata project. And I became obsessed with John Randall because Eric Sanderson is walking around the city seeing valleys and trees and marshes and all the animals and plants that used to live here. And he's walking the grid doing this. And the idea that 200 years earlier, this man was walking the island that Eric Sanderson would love to see, seeing lines and grids, just fascinated me. And I think that a little bit of that happens in my experience with Big Rock, and I think for other people too. Um, when they experience a place through time,
0: what was it like for John Randall Jr. to walk New York City in that way some 200 years ago?
1: He, he had a difficult time. <laughs> he, um, it was not a wilderness. I mean, it had it has uh, the island had a lot of farms. It had a lot of estates. Um, most of the trees had been raised during uh, the British occupation. This was right after the Revolutionary War, but it was still. Wild in, in, a, in a way that we would feel sort of connected to and very rural and rocky. So he had to go through thickets and he had to go through farms and crops and um, boulder, around boulders and over boulders. And he was also not met with great uh, pleasure and joy on the part of the landowners. People um,
0: threw cabbages at the guy.
1: There's a story that people threw, I think it was cabbages or artichokes at him, and that they would set their dogs on him. Uh, There's no direct uh, documentation of that in his field books, but he's always complaining that his his markers, he would put these wooden pegs down or these iron pegs down, and he's always complaining that they've been pulled out. no, why was that? that? Why were
0: these landowners so upset?
1: Because their land did not adhere to a grid, and because it meant that the as the city moved up the island, the contours of their boundaries were going to change. A lot of them, um, Reuben Rose Redwood discovered that um, a lot of them had houses and structures in the middle of what were soon to be avenues, maybe not so soon to be, but avenues to be and streets to be, and they didn't want to lose those structures. They didn't want to change the boundaries of their land. They were probably very worried about compensation, so they did not perceive Randall as a, as a friend.
0: Now, John Randall Jr. was also an inventor, and in fact, he invented his own surveying tools. Give me some examples of what he invented.
1: He did. He well. They were variations on standard surveying instruments, um, uh, instruments that could check for levels and elevations in the landscape. Instruments that could be used to meet out distances he was very worried about the terrain in, in Manhattan because it was so rugged and rough, and he was very worried about moving quickly because he had uh, very tight deadlines. So he seems to have designed these instruments to be able to move quickly and to be able to work with a, a real precision in a difficult landscape. And the person who really helped figure this out is a man named Jeff Locke, who is a an expert in co- colonial instruments. And he very kindly uh, took the images of Randall's instruments, blew them up, and spent three days figuring out down to sort of the, the, the screw um, and, and a leg of one of them, you know, how they worked, which was really phenomenal. And so they did seem somewhat similar, but also, um, also different, quite different, and not recognizable at first glance as sort of traditional surveying instruments.
0: You also say in the book that Randall was a perfectionist. Yes, did that slow him down, especially since he had these tight deadlines?
1: It did. He, um, he, yes, he would do things over and over again. You can see in his field books, which are at the New York Historical Society, society these layers of um, corrections. Um, I think it did slow him down, and he also. He would complain sometimes and ask the Common Council for more money because he was recalculating triangles to get the right length, and he would do this over and over again, and he, he would complain in one um, letter to them that he had tried to get everything so right at sort of great sacrifice in terms of his health and well-being and that uh, he was not sleeping anymore and um, becoming ill because he was so devoted to getting things perfect for them.
0: He was also obsessed about his reputation. Why was that the case? Why was he so concerned about what people thought about him?
1: I think there's several reasons, um, and I sort of hypothesized in the book about why that would be. One, he came from a community in Albany, um, a Presbyterian community that was very... close-knit, but also very, very careful in terms of watching over the members of the community and their conduct, their public conduct, their private conduct. And I think that he had a real concern about his reputation being tarnished sort of in the maybe spiritual and Uh, religious realm. Um, I think he was also just very practically concerned about it because he was trying to build a reputation as a professional who was, um, like most of the people at that time, independent. And he really only had his reputation as sort of a calling card for the next assignment. And Randall... He loved surveying, clearly, and he was just brilliant at it, but he was aspiring to be a civil engineer. He saw that as, um, my sense is that he really saw that as much more um, maybe um, having a higher status, bringing maybe more uh, a higher salary and more prestige. Did he get there? He did get there, but then it sort of uh, it didn't work out. All the way through his life, but at various moments he did absolutely get there.
0: Didn't he die destitute?
1: It seems that he did. All of the documents that I can find—court documents—and um, whatever—they're not a lot of descriptions of sort of his later life, um, but they all refer to money troubles and lawsuits and being sued for not for non-payment. Um, And he and his wife, Letitia, his second wife, lost the land uh, that they had. They had a lot of land in Maryland. They lost that. Uh, They were turned out of their house. There's a newspaper account of the sheriff sort of dumping them out of their property and taking sort of a, a list of everything that they owned and then trying to sell it. So he does seem to have ended up destitute.
0: Were you surprised by that ending, having done all of that research about what he did here in New York City? I was
1: that. saddened by it and surprised. Um, I became very very attached to him even though he seems a very difficult person. <laughs> a friend of mine was is reading the book and she wrote me a note um saying um you know that she was enjoying learning all about him but he was not a person she would like to go out and have drinks with. <laughs> <of. laughs> I think he was a very um he was a tough person. Um Although many accounts also talk about him as a very polite person and a very gracious person and a very sort of morally upright person. But he was difficult, and I think because he lived such a long life the people that he had been connected to in his early career had really passed on by the time he sort of came back to New York City he, he proposed an idea for the Elevated Railroad and he really just didn't get any traction with that and I was kind of surprised by that because it, his design uh, was very beautiful and interesting and there did seem at times a, a great deal of interest in it
0: you're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Baldarkey. Our guest this morning is Marguerite Holloway. She's the author of a new book about John Randall Jr., the man who plotted Manhattan's famous grid. The book is called The Measure of Manhattan. In addition to plotting Manhattan's street grid, what other projects was he involved with in his lifetime?
1: He did mapping upstate for Simeon DeWitt, sort of parceling out tracts of land in central and western New York state uh, for veterans um, and for settlers. He worked on... uh, a very grand canal, uh, not in terms of length, but in terms of importance, the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. He worked on one of the earliest railroads as chief engineer, the Newcastle and Frenchtown Railroad. He worked on the Ithaca and Owego Railroad in upstate New York. He worked on the Erie Canal to some degree. He made a very strong case for a route that was not ultimately chosen. He worked on a railroad in Georgia. Um, he was going to work on a railroad, another railroad in Delaware, so he did work on a lot of, oh the Delaware and Raritan Canal. He surveyed that, um, so he did a lot of projects ar- around uh, the northeast
0: now your book is the first biography of John Randall jr. the first Yes, how come it's taken this long?
1: There's not a lot of material on Randall, um, and I think um, people have written about him. Paul Cohen wrote about him and um and his co-author in Manhattan and Maps. And there was a graduate student at Columbia who was trying to find out about him. Reuben Rose Redwood wrote some about him in his master's work. Um, And then Ralph Gray, who's a historian who wrote um, the most that I could ever find on Randall. He did A History of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal. But there's nothing... There are very few letters. There are um, accounts in his field books, sort of personal stories about his horse being stolen and about his arguments with his men and about visitors coming through. But there's not a personal journal. There's not sort of a chronology of his whole life. And it seems that a lot of letters that ended up with a relative of his were lost um, sort of about 100 years ago. And I'm hoping that, you know, this book, sort of bringing Randall... uh, out a little bit um, will lead people to maybe find other letters and journals. Um, But I think it's just that material is scattered, and there's not very much of it.
0: His field books, though, did include a recipe or two, right? They did.
1: They included a recipe or two, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, his field books, there's some at the New York Historical Society that that most of them, and there's some at the Onondaga Historical Association in Syracuse, and they, I think, I found three or four recipes in there. Little unusual to
0: have in a field book like that. I
1: yes, and I think that's also part of the reason I like him so much. He just he mixed everything in, and he was interested in food. Um, And as my editor pointed out at some point, when you're camping out and it's cold and you're far away from everything, food would become, of course, (laughs) quite an obsession.
0: Do you think it's that lack of information, that's the reason why he hasn't been celebrated in New York City history? We just didn't know enough about him?
1: I think that he, um, the lack of information is part of it, um, that it's very hard to tell a whole story. I mean, my story also relates to contemporary use of his data, so it would be a shorter book without sort of that connection to the present. Um, I think that's one reason. I also think the other reason is that he implemented the grid. He set the grid down, but as far as we can tell, he's not the originator of the grid idea for, for Manhattan, so he's not a, a major figure in terms of, you know, in comparison with the three commissioners that designed the grid plan. But I think he's a very important figure maybe in a sort of another tier down because he really is the person who made sure that the grid was fixed in this very precise way and because he left these extraordinary maps that are just are, very, are not well known um, that, that are just so beautiful um, so not a, a huge towering figure but an important one
0: can you view those maps yourself? Are they available for view?
1: The maps are in the care of the Manhattan Borough President's Office. The The, the maps I was just referring to, the very beautiful maps, um, are are called the Randall Farm Maps, and there are 92 of them. And I think the scale is a uh, 100 feet to an inch. And they cover all of Manhattan from where the grid started all the way up. To the northern reaches, and you can see them online. Uh, last a few years ago, when the grid exhibit was um, opened at the Museum of the City of New York, the museum and the Manhattan Borough President's office worked very closely to digitize all those maps and put them online, so you can see them there. It's harder to see them um, in you know in, in actuality um, because uh, they're they're very fragile, they're old, and they're really. Uh, should only be viewed, I think, mostly for official business.
0: Wasn't there some controversy over one map in particular where he didn't get the credit for it or someone else's name appeared on it or something like that?
1: Yes, there there was. Um, the 1811 Commissioner's Plan... Um, Randall submitted three manuscript copies, which were hand-done. And then another surveyor, a city surveyor named William Bridges, approached the Common Council and said he would like permission to take the manuscript map and engrave it. And make it available to uh, to the common council, and they said that's fine. And Bridges did do that. So when you have an engraved map, obviously you can make more copies of it, and that is the map that is really uh, most people might be are, are more familiar with as the 1811 grid plan. And Randall was extremely irate about this, but he sort of kept it close because he was, I think, waiting on another commission or gig with the common council but when he tried to publish his own engraved version of of the map a few years later in 1814 this flurry of bitter exchanges unfolded between him and William Bridges in in uh, the New York City newspapers Uh, and then it didn't it seems to have just died away because Bridges himself actually died a few months later.
0: This guy reminds me of the Rodney Dangerfield of his time. I just don't get any respect, in a way. <laughs>
1: I think he did, but he also was just missing sometimes. That's true.
0: What do you think he would think of New York City today if you were walking our streets?
1: I spend so much time, probably too much time, thinking about that because I think he would be fascinated. I think he would be... Really delighted that the grid actually did unfurl all the way up the island. I think he'd be just very pleased with that. I think he would be just amazed by the subways. He would be studying the buses. He would just be, he would be blown away by the instruments that we have and the, the way of getting around, the way of measuring. I think he would be really, um, really excited.
0: Now, your friend didn't want to sit down for dinner and drinks with John Randall Jr., but it sounds like you would sit down.
1: I would, and I would be prepared for him to to point out to me uh, how certain aspects of his story are not precise.
0: <laughs> what would be the one question, if you were before you today, that you would want to ask John Randall Jr.? You only have one question, Marguerite. What would it be?
1: Oh, that is so difficult. I... I I have so many. That's very hard because throughout this whole process, I have just I have formulated thousands of questions for him. I would ask him where he put his papers, so <laughs> I, <laughs> so, so he I could have could. made your
0: research easier. <laughs> 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 the book is *The Measure of Manhattan*. Marguerite Holloway, thank you so much for coming in.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Marguerite Holloway is the Director of Science and Environmental Journalism at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She's the author of a new book called The Measure of Manhattan, The Tumultuous Career and Surprising Legacy of John Randall Jr., Cartographer, Surveyor, Inventor. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarchy. We now turn our attention from a 19th century surveyor, to one working in present-day New York City. Patrick Jones is the owner of New York City Land Surveyors, based on Staten Island. Patrick, thanks for taking the time. Uh, You're welcome. When you tell someone that you're a surveyor in New York City, do they get what you do right away?
2: Not quite. There's definitely uh, a lot of people that walk up to us when we're on site that know uh, exactly what we do, and then there's a lot of people that walk up to us that ask a lot of questions like, uh, you know, mostly it's, is that a camera or typically the, the equipment we use resemble uh, cameras because uh, basically uh, it's, it's a lens and it, a lot of it's robotic and it kind of looks like a movie camera. So a lot of times uh, they're curious as to if we're shooting film.
0: So how do you explain what you do to someone who asks those questions?
2: We take our time to to uh, educate them a little bit as briefly as possible.
0: Educate me, if you will.
2: Typically, we're on construction sites. What we'll do is uh, we'll shoot. Uh, we call it shooting, but uh, it's uh, measuring uh, distances and angles to a lot of structures in order to... Uh, mostly we work for developers and contractors, so we're basically uh, expert measures. <laughs> Basically that's uh that's what we do. We we uh collect data by measuring and a lot of it is technologically driven. As two years ago where they would be taking a lot of notes, writing down uh angles and distances and using al- algorithms and a lot of geometry. Uh a lot of that is collected today through many computers.
0: How much do you know about your predecessors in New York City? Is that a history that you're interested in, the people who, for instance, drafted Manhattan's grid plan?
2: I'm not too educated on the gentleman or the surveyor that actually mapped out Manhattan and whatnot.
0: I can tell you this, Patrick. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but those early surveyors were not always popular. They had dogs sicked on them by landowners, angry at the prospect of streets being plowed through their properties. They were pelted with vegetables. Anything like that ever happened to you?
2: Um, <laughs> actually, uh, I've gotten chased by my share of uh, dogs uh, over the years. Uh, when we were doing property surveys where we needed to gain access and uh... it was a matter of getting the job done and you know by any means possible uh... yeah, yeah it's uh... i don't know if the, if the owners would actually sick their dogs on us but uh... there would be dogs in yards <laughs> that we uh... that we would get chased definitely uh... there are some uh... disgruntled landowners a lot you know a lot of the phone calls we get today is um... Regarding fence lines and and whatnot, where there's boundaries in question, but nothing in the regard to uh, 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 homeowners being being vicious towards us. <laughs>
0: Is there anything particularly challenging about being a surveyor in New York City compared to anywhere else?
2: The um, urban surveyor, uh, as you know, as we're known as. Uh, you know here in New york or any major city um it, it's it's a it's a different um it's a different atmosphere it's a different uh way of life working inside the city with so many people uh it ha- poses its challenges
0: what would you say was the most challenging project you've been involved with
2: we've had uh, a couple of very uh structurally <laughs> uh i guess challenging buildings where uh, the designer, the architect designer, just the building design itself uh, doing the layout. Uh I would say the uh, maybe the standard hotel down on uh Lower West Side and possibly uh one we're doing right now on 15th Street in Manhattan where uh you have some structural steel at, at very odd angles uh, that we're surveying and trying to uh position correctly. But uh I would say uh there's definitely a, a couple of buildings in Manhattan where the architects are just getting fancier with the designs and they're posing uh, some serious challenges for us.
0: At the end of the day, Patrick, do you ever think that you're playing a significant role in shaping the future of New York City, not unlike your predecessors, the early surveyors?
2: I believe surveyors play a, a big role in, uh, in society, especially here in, in the city where the real estate is very expensive and it's very important to maintain good practice. We're very proud. I believe a lot of our surveyors that work that work for us are very proud of what they do. I think it you play a very important role. I believe it's uh it's very uh challenging as well as gratifying to uh be a part of some of the bigger projects here in the city. And actually to watch uh these buildings go up is very satisfying.
0: Patrick, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Patrick Jones owns New York City Land Surveyors on Staten Island. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.